Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only sports programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Alex Coogan-Reeves. In the programme this week, we hear Lord Sebastian Coe's vision for athletics and preview the Wellington Sevens. We also hear from Jerome Champagne about his failed bid for the FIFA presidency and check in with the Breakers as they resume their race for the NBL minor premiership. The British athletics legend and IAAF presidential hopeful Lord Sebastian Coe visited the country this week to meet with sport officials six months out from the presidential election. The double Olympic champion and former chair of the organising committee for the 2012 London Olympics met with Athletics New Zealand, but insists the trip wasn't about grubbing for votes. I spoke to him about how he sees the future of athletics and addressed the suggestion shot put could be cut from the Olympics programme. If the challenge of sport in the 20th century was about connecting sport to the world, the biggest, the overwhelming challenge in the 21st century is to connect young people to sport. And that needs engagement, we need to listen, we need to understand the world that young people are living in and we need to be able to engage with them in language they understand and with technology that's probably far more familiar to them than it is to people of my age. Would you say some Olympic sports and athletics have been slower to adapt, perhaps, to, to the changing world than, than other sports? I don't know whether some have been slower or, 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 or faster. And, and in a way, it's not for me, you know, it's not for me to benchmark my sport against other sports. But I do think it's important for all sport to recognise that, like never before, they're in a very, very fast-moving environment we have some of the big challenges which really centre around capturing the imagination of young people, but we've never before had more technology that allows us to access and get into the lives of young people in a sensible way and to explain what our sport is about. So I think that it's, it's clearly a balance, but I do think that my experience in London tells me that you have to be very smart now and spend a lot of time understanding the landscape, the environment, the world that young people live in because they don't just see sport through the same set of metrics that we saw sport, you know, if, you know, for people of my generation. They're seeing it in, in a much broader context and we have to understand what that context is. And with a more competitive market, there's 
probably more sports available to young people than there's ever More sports before. available, more activities available, more screen-based activities. You know, it's, it's, I hate sounding like the economist that I am, but, you know, the, the, the expression consumer sovereignty for young people is probably a good way of explaining, you know, they, you know, we don't have control of the message anymore, they do. They don't just, they don't just consume content, they create it. And unless our product, our sports are authentic and those experiences that we're creating are authentic, they will find other things to do. And it's a very competitive world, so sport has to continually make sure that it is, you know, it's in that mix of all the other things that young people are being attracted to. And does it take a bit of outs, outside the box thinking and being prepared to take a risk as well? Because, well, with all due respect, uh, young people aren't likely to listen to, you know, an older person telling them they should play sport. You need no, no, it, ways. no, it, it, exactly. And actually, you're you're quite right. It's not, you know, no individual federation or any individual within that federation is going to be able to turn that tide. What you need to be able to do is have a set of values that are universal and timeless, have a sport that is accessible and democratic, uh, a sport that's well governed so that, you know, young people sit at all the, you know, at all the, 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 the big moral hotspots. You know, they're, you know, they're fiercely uh, anti-discriminatory. They are very, very interested in the global world, the globalized world they live in. They are environmentally very sensitive about the world. And we need to make sure our sport adapts to understand what those, you know, what that landscape looks like. So yes, it needs, it needs a, a more, often it needs a more creative it needs a more creative approach and we need all the time to explain what our sporting values are but they've got to be practically based they can't just sort of sit there in the laboratory and we sort of throw out words we have to give meaning to those words and and just very quickly you've touched on this obviously and here in new zealand the suggestion that shot put <laughs> was in the firing seem, it line it does seem uh, to be a recurring question this morning yeah uh, but, i i can't say i wasn't prepared for it um, and it's not just simply because I'm standing in New Zealand and you have, you know, one of the Herculean performers of her generation. But I can, uh, it is, uh, there, there has to be one underpinning principle here. It is for the sport. It is for a sport to decide what constitutes its sport. I'm not going to take lectures, nor should our sport take lectures from people outside the sport that would not understand how important the whole family of track and field is. And I can see no persuadable argument as to why we should suddenly jettison shot put any more than we should jettison race walk or we should jettison triple jump. You know, the, and, and those are the other suggestions that I've heard on my travels recently. I think we have to be fiercely protective about the independence of our sport and for our sport to make those judgments. And when you talk about adaptation and appealing to a new younger audience, you don't need to get rid of tradition at the same time. No, no, you don't, and nor should you. Um, but your sport always has to have its eyes open to, you know, what young people are thinking about. We need to spend more time listening and discussing our sport with young people. We need to spend more time talking about 
talking to our fan base. We've got the technology to do it. We don't always do that as well as we could do. And I think it's really important also that in shaping the future of the sport, you know, you are not entirely, you're not entirely shaping that sport around, you know, the current, you know, trends for 14 or 15 year olds, because, you know, that, that's quite a transient thing. But you do have to be alive to the fact that if you are wanting to expand the fan base, you want it to be a younger fan base. And the average age of people watching track and field is now 56, 60, where when I was competing, it was, you know, it was in the middle 30s. You know, clearly there's something we need to address here, but it isn't just sitting there in an ad hoc fashion deciding that suddenly shot put doesn't fit the bill. You know, it, our, our sport is a family of sport and it's for the sport itself to decide what constitutes that sport. There could be up to 14,000 empty seats for this weekend's Wellington Sevens. The 34,500 seats at Westpac Stadium are usually sold out, but ticket sales for this year's tournament have been slow. And as Michael Allen reports, the slow sales are leading some to ask if the capital has fallen out of love with the tournament. Between 2002 and 2012, the Wellington Seven sold all of its tickets, and in 2011, the tournament sold out in three minutes. Only 13,000 tickets were sold on the first day of sales for this year's instalment. In reaction to that, organisers slashed the prices for general tickets from $199 to $149 in October. But since then, just another 7,000 tickets have been sold, leaving about 14,000 seats still to fill. The president of the Wellington branch of the Hospitality Association, Jeremy Smith, is worried if things don't turn around, the tournament will move elsewhere. If the Sevens no longer generates significant revenue for the city, then the city probably won't keep on investing in it. So absolutely we're concerned and we're working very closely with uh, you know, the rugby union with the Wellington City Council in terms of saying what, what do we need to change to, to make it better. But the general manager of the Sevens, Steve Dunbar, put some of the blame on Wellington's saturated sports and entertainment market. If you have a look at the last couple of weeks, Wellington Cup, Nitro Circus, two Black Caps matches here at the stadium last week, and just after the Sevens, four Cricket World Cup matches coming in here, so once in a generation opportunity to go along. There is external factors, but we're also looking at ourselves to make sure that we continue to freshen the product. The chief executive of Westpac Stadium, Shane Harmon, says the tournament is going through a transition, away from a booze field festival. We think this event is at a stage now where it does need to evolve and, and I think you'll see more focus on the Rugby Sevens itself and uh, we're certainly trying to gear more towards families and broaden the demographic that are coming to this event. So it's going through a bit of a transition at the moment but we think the Sevens will come out stronger in the end. A law student at Victoria University, Hugo Porter, has been to four Sevens tournaments. He says the Sevens may be past its best. Some events have a lifespan and maybe the Sevens is approaching its life, the end of its lifespan but definitely reduce security and more police officers as people have a lot more respect for them and less security guards that are out there trying to prove themselves or be macho men picking on people. The first game kicks off tomorrow at 12 o'clock and organisers are hoping for good weather and a large walk-up crowd to boost numbers. The former England and current Fiji Sevens coach told Vinnie Wiley the Wellington Sevens in its current format may have run its course. 
sounds easy to talk about things retrospectively, but you could see that Wellington was about to hit the skids on this because they, it got too much of a party. I think the Golden Goose, um, they just thought, was just going to run away with itself. And I noticed over the last few years that drinking became excessive, um, the rugby supporters became smaller, and eventually that bubble was going to burst, and it has done. And they've obviously got to look at it now and change. London's the same, you know. It's suddenly got this huge crowds, and they're on the edge of getting it right or wrong now over the next season as well. And uh, the crowds could get affected. So a, a big lesson to a World Series and uh, tournaments that, you know, don't just uh, expect that you're going to fill the stadiums once you've got capacity crowds. And also don't base it all on party. You know, the, the, the biggest product is the players and the game. And uh, we need to understand that and reward reward it like that so I don't know what it would be like it would be weird last year was the same um, it was half full until New Zealand came in and then, then it came, you know, went full in the stands then it went empty again um, so it's a shame I hope Wellington because off the field I know they're working really hard and it's a nice smooth uh, week here well run by New Zealand Rugby Union and Wellington Rugby Union so I hope they can um, get it back on track because it certainly was the, one of the blue ribbon if not my favourite event and uh, that's dropped down the pecking order um, in the last few years. Obviously a completely different kind of Sevens event, but you know, Fiji hosts plenty of popular uh, Sevens events, the likes of Coral Coast, etc., you know, throughout the year, which uh, get great followings and lots of teams come from around the world to take part in those. Um, a different kind of atmosphere, you know, w what do you think makes a successful tournament in terms of, obviously, you know, uh, it makes a difference to the players, uh, you know, how the fans interact and how many people are there and, and the sort of vibe of the place, um, you know, Obviously, you mentioned maybe a bit too much of a party, but where, where is that balance? What, what, what makes it work, do you think? I'm no marketing expert, but from what I've seen, um, you need low accessible ticket pricing uh, with daily tickets available. Um, you need to really start to hit the family market a lot more now, um, get those kids in the stadium and make it that uh, atmosphere that's a little bit more uh, even. Uh, Dubai have done that brilliantly. Um, they've got plenty of people that are drinking constantly there, but they've got a lot of families there, and it makes for a much, really nice environment. Um, and uh, you know, I think Dubai is probably the model at the moment that all the other tournaments can aspire to as far as the mix of the people that come there. Um, it works really well. So, look, I'm sure, like I said, I'm no marketing expert. I'm sure these, te these tournaments have got good ideas, but, you know, just remember that, you know, it's not about the party. It shouldn't, shouldn't be. Um, and unfortunately, it's fueled it now, but hopefully the quality of, of the contest now, more and more world-class players coming back to sevens, more and more little stars being produced from the sevens game. Hopefully the game will start to sell itself. Meanwhile, on the field, the All Blacks sevens team will have a young side for the tournament without the veteran Tim Mickelson. He's been ruled out with a groin injury, bringing the rookie Murphy Tatamai in as a replacement. The coach, Sir Gordon Titchen, says the loss of Mickelson is a big blow. It's a huge loss. I mean, someone with that experience and someone that's performed extremely well over, the, over all the World Series, really. He's one of the players that uh, we've certainly desperately missed. I mean, he's uh, an icon on Sevens now. He's one of the guys, the go-to guys, and um, just offers so much. But, um, you know, but then I have confidence in the, the players that are coming in to replace him as well. When and how did this happen? Oh, it's just a, a training injury, really. Just a, a groin injury and uh, a precaution, really. It started as we decided to get a scan and this showed a, a slight tear. And, I mean, we could probably get him across the line, but the risk is too great. And uh, we've opted to, to 
to freshen up, miss these two tournaments, and then he'll be ready for Hong Kong and Japan. And how's he feeling? Is he, is he pretty gutted to, to miss the home tournament? Yeah, he's pretty devastated. I mean, he was upset visibly. I mean, it's the tournament all players in the, in the All Black squad want to play in. And for him not to be in Wellington, I mean, it's the first time. And uh, must be, you know, certainly uh, upsetting for him. But um, he'll be part of the team, part of the squad, and uh, might run water. But he can still offer a lot in terms of his experience to help the new younger players in the squad. How tempting was it for him to maybe play him? Mate, it was always tempting, but then talking to the medical staff, it was too big a risk. And uh, for such a player, you know, I mean, I'm looking to Tim Mickelson for bigger things, the Olympics, and uh, he's huge to the squad. IRB Sevens Player of the Year, he's an outstanding Sevens player, and I wasn't prepared to take that risk. You mentioned the loss of his leadership. There's already no Tomasi Farmer, no Lottie Rakambula in the squad. Was it tempting to bring one of those guys in to, to add post that yeah, part of it? they were certainly one of the options. I looked at all the options, really, and uh, including Lottie Rakambula in that as well, and I felt the best option was uh, Murphy um, Karawai, which, uh, to me, is uh, the right option. I'm going with a 6-6 split, and I've also got uh, a couple of forwards that quite actively play very, very well in the backs as well. It covers to me. Touch, how much of a buzz is it for you still, or do you get a buzz out of it still telling young guys like Murphy that he's going to play in his home tournament? And we just spoke to him before, he was ecstatic to get that call from you. Oh, for sure. I mean, for any youngster, and there's, there's certainly five of them, I think, having their first Wellington tournament, it's a, it's a dream come true for them to play. You know, we play one tournament a year in, in New Zealand, in the All Black Sevens team, and, uh, and this is their opportunity. And I mean, um, he's from Wellington. I mean, that's why he's buzzing, really. And, um, you know, I mean, he'll. Uh, give it his all, I know he will, and, uh, and quite special for him to be named. I also saw how upset he was when he missed. So that also um, probably uh, was in the back of my mind when selecting him. So this gives you another opportunity to have a look at him, doesn't it? Gives me another great opportunity, also growing with the experience. He's had two tournaments, um, you know, he played particularly well for us in South Africa, and he's growing as a youngster, and uh, he's a full-time sevens player as well, and uh, you know, I think, as I said, a great opportunity for him to to move forward and upward, and I'm sure he will. How much is that lack of experience going to tell, do you think? Yeah, when you say about lack of experience, I, I still feel that, um, you know, with DJ Forbes, Sam Dixon, Scott Curry, Gillies Kaka, you know, Shu and Stowers, there's still a lot of experience there, and they've got some good young guys around them. Don't worry, I think, you know, for the new youngsters that come into any, any environment of ours, you've got to learn from the experienced players. And we've had some, some particularly good games, days at training. I thought our game against Argentina, who are a strong side, was good. We got opened up at certain times, and uh, it's a good learning going into the tournament. And uh, when you've got young guys like Rico, you know, Ioanni, and, and also Bodine Waka, guys that are really talented, Jack Goodchew, it's exciting. Dylan Collier. I mean, they're very good rugby players. And now can they make the step up? That's what we need to know. We need to grow our players in New Zealand as well because uh, this game of sevens is becoming more competitive. We've got Olympics in 216, 220. They've got to start coming from somewhere and this is an opportunity for them. The Frenchman Jerome Champagne has failed in his bid to unseat Sepp Blatter as FIFA president. He confirmed this week he hadn't received the necessary backing from five national associations, so he isn't able to stand. Champagne says national associations feared reprisals if they supported him. His withdrawal from the race leaves three other candidates in the running against Blatter, the former Portugal forward Luis Figo, the Dutch FA president Michael van Praag and Prince Ali bin Al-Hussein of Jordan. 
Champagne told Nine to Noon's Catherine Ryan a recent change in the rules foiled his bid. In uh, 2013, before the FIFA Congress in Mauritius, uh, FIFA asked the uh, six continental confederations to ask uh, for some amendments to the statutes. And UEFA came up with the proposal that we would need at that time 10 letters of presentation rather than one. Uh, it was cut in two and five, but obviously what has happened in the past days is that some, <clears throat> some uh, commitments and promises from European affairs to issue letters of nominations for me were lost because clearly UFR was supporting three candidates and that closed a lot of doors for me. So that's the situation. I feel uh, no anger, no frustration, but it's just the reality. To put it bluntly, was this done to shut people and specifically to shut you out of qualifying to run? The, the paradox is that um, I, I heard your comment, and, and, and FIFA is blamed for everything what is taking place in football, but I think your listeners need first to understand that FIFA is a federation of 209 uh, national football associations, including the New Zealand soccer one. But the government of FIFA is controlled by the six continental confederations, OFC for Oceania, UFI, and CAF for Europe and Africa, respectively. Your listeners need to know that the executive committee of FIFA is controlled by these confederations, which are not members of FIFA. In a democracy like in New Zealand, the people of New Zealand elect someone to become the prime minister, and that person has a right to pick up his or her government to implement the program he or she has been elected for. That's the democratic principle. In FIFA, the government of FIFA, the executive committee, is not controlled by FIFA, it's controlled by the confederations. And when the FIFA president, uh, who is elected worldwide, arrives, his government is already set up, uh, controlled by non-members, the confederations, and elected in a different political cycle, in a different political platform. That's why there is a lot of confusion. For example, when it was said that uh, there was some exchange of votes or exchange of monies, be, be money between presidents of confederations, FIFA is blamed for that. But basically, it is because the confederations control the executive committee that the reason why FIFA is accused of everything. But I agree with you, we need to fight to improve the image, we need to increase transparency, but that's why in my program I, I was proposing to change the composition of the EXCO and to give it back to the national associations who are the real owners of FIFA, not the confederations. I take your point that essentially there is a club that is, what, a law unto itself and that is assuming power to itself over a mass membership. Yes. Uh, you know, in my first paper three years ago, uh, I described the so-called FIFA government controlled by the confederations as a stock exchange where the president of the six uh, con continental confederations exchanged their block of votes, blocks of votes in, in exchange of this or that. Uh, I, I've attended close to 50 meetings to the FIFA Exco, and I could see that uh, it's, it's controlled by blocks. And, and it's not a democratic system, absolutely not. Before we get to the programme of reform that you were proposing, can we look more at what's happened here to shut you out? I, I'm wondering, as you were campaigning for support for your bid, how many football associations told you that they'd already decided before candidacy had even closed and before candidates had been through the compulsory anti-corruption test? How many associations... Yeah, well, you know, mm. Yes, in, 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 in the Netherlands, for example, they have a very uh, good and, and very well-read circulating... Uh, weekly soccer, weekly magazine called Verbal International. Just to tell you that in the issue just before Christmas, Mr. Van Pai, who is now one of the candidates, went publicly to say that there's uh, absolutely uh, no reason why not to support me because I was, I was comp I'm competent, blah, 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 blah. 
and and suddenly it switched off. And I I, su- I suspect by because of the experience of other federations in Europe, with I was in contact with in order to obtain these letters, and suddenly doors were shut. So I, I do believe that uh, UFA has as as carpet bomb the list of candidates by three candidates, as you know, uh, obtaining the letters for them and and blocking uh, blocking me from obtaining these letters. So that's the reality. As I said, I don't feel frustration and just disappointed, but I will I will keep on defending my ideas. So obviously we're hearing machinations behind the scenes. They weren't telling you there was any reason for them not supporting you. They were what? They were telling you that they might have supported what you were on about. But in the end, did they give you a reason for not supporting your bid? No, no, actually they don't. Uh, in fact, you have a you have a, a different situation. For example, in the continent like South uh, South America, where I have a lot of friends, uh, they said, "You understand, uh, we want to support Mr. Blatter again, but we have to vote as as a united continent because at ten they 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 feel that they're alone. Uh, they need to be united. So you have a lot of different reasons. But what is clear uh, is that we're going to fall again in the same experience that we experienced in 1998 and 2002 elections, where we're going to have a very uh, Manichaean and binary divide between, I would say, FIFA versus UEFA, uh, Mr. Blatter versus Platini. And I'm afraid that we're not going to, uh, to focus on the real issues, which are the to improve the representation of football, incorporating players, leagues, and, cl- and clubs in the decision-making process, to rebalance between the continents, because today the Executive Committee of FIFA, like the United Nations Security Council, represent more the way football was than the way football is. Uh, and, and we need to tackle the, uh, the central issue, according to me, uh, for football, which is a growing, uh, incredible growth of inequalities. Uh, 20, the 20 wealthiest clubs in Western Europe have a, a, a cumulative turnover of 6.2 billion, 6.2 billion euros. While, for example, around the world, we have close to half of the FIFA federations uh, which survive with less than 2 million euros a year. Uh, we have clubs in Western Europe which survive with budget of 1 or 2 million dollars a year. So this growth of the inequalities is, is in football more or less the same that we are suffering worldwide. You, you know that last week, the statistics was released that uh, the wealthiest 1% of our population now owns, controls 49% of the world wealth. In football, it is even worse. And, and that's why I can't think on that topic, because the, 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 more, the larger the gap is between these 20 clubs and the rest of football, football is becoming more and more elitist, more, more and more privatized, looking more and more like basketball and the NBA. And um, we have a consequence. We have uh, less and less uh, uncertainty of the result. The competitions are becoming more and more previsible, and, and there is something wrong. But it is clear, if you look at the, the slogans put forward by the three candidates who surfaced last week, none of, none of them want to tackle the issue of inequalities, which clearly shows that there is a feeling, uh, a very Eurocentric feeling. You know, the problem in world football is a lot of people believe that what is good for, for, for Chelsea or Real Madrid is automatically, automatically good for football in Botswana, in Bolivia, in Moldova, or, or in Cook Island. It's definitely not, the, not true. And what we are seeing today is a clear attempt by the wealthiest of our community to control the government. That's Jerome Champagne speaking with Catherine Ryan. The National Basketball League regular season is nearing an end and the Breakers are in the midst of a battle with the Kens Taipans for the minor premiership. 
Both sides have identical records, but the Taipans hold the advantage, having the 2-1 lead in the season series and a superior point spread. They face off in the final round, capping a tough final three games for the Breakers, including meetings with Perth and Melbourne. However, first they have to get past the struggling Crocodiles in Townsville, and Mikovacona says that's not as easy as it sounds. Their record might say they've struggled, but they've taken every team to the wire. Um, they've come up against uh, any of the top four teams and they've pushed them, and you know some of those games they should have won. So if we were to go up to Townsville thinking like that, we'd be fools. Um, right now, they're a pretty hot team, even though they haven't won any games. Um, in saying so, we got it. It's great for us, the preparation, because we go away home, away home. That's great for uh, mimicking a little bit of the playoffs. And what better way than to go against top teams that you're going to play against? So we get to see a little bit of them before the playoffs, and it, um, you know we get to see that and uh, just try our little combinations and stuff. Always a big defensive challenge going up against Conklin, and you, you've had some success against them in the past this year. Yeah, the time that we've had success is when we've played as a team against him. Um, he's a uh, talented scorer, and uh, any time that you allow him to go and uh, do his thing, you know he can put 30, 40 points on you. So look, uh, we, we practice that today, you know, in terms of how we're going to combat him, but not just him. Uh, they've got great shooters in their team, and uh, another top rebound in t- terms of gladness, you know, NBA uh, player there. But um, you know, we're doing the right things and we're preparing in the right way for this game. The fact that you're in this tight dogfight with Cairns for that first spot means that you can't really take this game. There'll be no complacency ahead of this game at all. No, and um, there shouldn't be any complacency. If you would uh, say that to me two weeks ago before we got our asses kicked it, um, I would have said the same thing. But look, it was a good wake-up call, and um, you know everybody, as you can see here, we've just come out and we're just training to light the next game. It was desperate luck we're not even in the playoffs, and I think that's the way we need to go before we even hit it. Do you think you can still overtake Cairns, given the points spread that they've got on you? Definitely. I mean, that's our goal. We went out, we will get it. How important is home advantage in the playoffs um, in in the players' minds, given you have actually played pretty well on the the road this year as well? Massive. Massive. I mean, just knowing that you have that fan base, that you don't have to travel, you've got your own house, you've got your own bed to sleep on, is massive in, in the players. Plus it's a little reward for everybody that's done the hard work all the way through to say, look, we've done this part, the first half of the season, and the first part of going towards going getting their championship. So it um, it makes a massive deal to get in their first spot. Is, is part of it as well just setting a, setting a goal for these four weeks so that you, you do stay focused on something? Yeah, you have to. Because if you're thinking way ahead into the playoffs, well, you might not might as well get there you know um, because then you're thinking way too far ahead and you, you forget all the little things you know and once you do that then by the time you get to the playoffs it pretty much goes to shit that's the show for this week feedback is welcome at sport at radionz.co.nz and you can find the latest sports news anytime on our website i'm alex coogan reeves and we'll be back with more extra time next week i'm nick friedman I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. 
I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.